Key Lecture The Historical Background Saladin's Court Carol Hillenbrandt is the Professor of Islamic History at the University of Edinburgh and author of The Crusades, Islamic Perspectives. My brief today is to provide a historical background to the symposium and to speak about Saladin's court. Who was Saladin? Saladin was the third and easily the most famous of the Muslim military commanders of the 12th century who turned the tide and began to recapture the lands seized by the Crusaders from 1098 onwards. Saladin grew up in a Kurdish military family who served the Turkish barons who controlled the Middle East and more especially Syria and Palestine. From the early 11th century, the nomadic Turks had swept from Central Asia right across the Eastern Islamic world. And by the 1060s, their military strength had pushed aside all opposition from the Persians and the Arabs whose lands they now ruled. Severe religious and political disunity had made the Muslim world unable to withstand the onslaught of the First Crusade. <coughs> or, to put it another way, the spirit of jihad had become forgotten. As a result, the Muslims saw with pain the creation of four crusader Christian states on Middle Eastern soil. The loss of Jerusalem in 1099, the third most holy city in Islam, caused great anguish. And it took the Muslims well over half a century to find the kind of military leadership they needed to begin to defeat the Crusaders and regain their lands. The first two Muslim military commanders who achieved major successes against the Crusaders were father and son, the Turks, Zengi and Nuruddin. Saladin himself, raised in a Muslim Turkish military environment and serving Nuruddin, was a Kurd whose family had originated from the Caucasus. The way forward for Kurds in the 12th century lay in service as mercenary soldiers, and that was Saladin's background. From 1171 onwards, Saladin seized the territories of his Turkish predecessor, Nur ad-Din, Egypt, Syria, and Palestine. He then built on the achievements of his predecessor, he acquired a power base with the help of his vast family network, won a famous victory against the Crusaders at the Battle of Hattin in 1187, and that same year enjoyed his crowning achievement, the reconquest of Jerusalem for Islam. He failed, however, to defeat the forces of Richard the Lionheart in the Third Crusade, which immediately followed the Muslim reconquest of Jerusalem. Saladin died in 1193. The combination of Saladin and Richard the Lionheart has entranced Western Europe ever since. Popular legend has linked them together, and both have enjoyed a sort of symbiotic heroic status until modern times. Saladin's reputation in medieval Europe was extremely high. He was praised for his magnanimity, and this portrait of him hangs in the Uffizi. In case you want to know, it's by someone called Cristofano dell'Altissimo, um, of whom no one's heard. <laughs> I googled him. And nowadays, in the Middle East, many Muslim leaders aspire to have the title the second Saladin, but that's another lecture. <laughs> now, from this brief, hasty overview of Saladin's military achievements, it's important to note that amongst the lands he came to rule were Syria and Egypt. Egypt had long enjoyed a sophisticated government system and was heir to the great Greek intellectual traditions of Alexandria. As for Syria... By the time Saladin came to power, the area was strongly influenced by Perso-Islamic concepts of rulership, which Saladin had known from his childhood in Iraq. His close advisors 
and the key members of his court entourage came from both these traditions. The life of his court followed the traditions adopted by other small successor city-states that had come into being in the wake of the fragmentation of the great Seljuk Empire from around 1100 onwards. What is a court in this context? We should certainly divest ourselves of preconceived notions of palaces, crowns, thrones, and the distinguishing marks of a sedentary monarch. As in many medieval European countries, the court of the ruler was often peripatetic. How much more so in the case of a military usurper such as Saladin and his two <coughs> Turkish predecessors? They travelled constantly, often over vast distances, first to secure their own power base, and then, if possible, to capture key cities, Damascus, Aleppo, and Cairo. The safest thing to say about Saladin's court, in inverted commas, is that it could be found wherever he happened to be, sometimes for a short while or longer, in the winter, he would reside in Cairo. That was during the early stage of his rise to power. Or he would live in Damascus, the city he loved best. In both these cities, he lived in the citadel, an elevated fortified precinct, which nevertheless had space to house his court. If not on campaign, he would live in Cairo or Damascus, but mostly he lived in his military encampment and held court there. The finest intellectuals of the time flocked to join Saladin's service. Let me mention the three most important ones. <coughs> Firstly, Al-Qadi Al-Fadl, a lawyer, poet, and writer of uh, extremely difficult Arabic letters. He'd been trained in the government of Fatimid Egypt, and he became head of Saladin's chancery as early as 1171. He remained Saladin's chief advisor until Saladin's death in 1193. A second exceptional individual in Saladin's employ was Imer al-Din al-Isfahani. As his name indicates, he was born in Isfahan in Iran and studied in Baghdad. He wrote important historical works about the Seljuk Turks and also about Saladin in high-flown prose style. And the third key figure was Baha Adin ibn Shaddad, a most talented religious scholar from Iraq. He joined Saladin's service rather late, in 1188. His biography of his master, recently translated by Donald Richards, reveals, as Donald says, the author's affection, admiration, and then regret for Saladin. So when Saladin traveled, his officials, and we have some rather nice-looking scribes on the screen, his officials, religious scholars, Sufis, and literary protégés went with him. And so, of course, did at least some of the doctors that clustered round him. Saladin is unusual in medieval Islamic history in that he had the benefit, so to speak, of two court biographers, two spin doctors, if you like, Ibn Shaddad and Imad Adin who have left glowing accounts of their master. These biographies provide more information for him than we have for previous rulers of the 12th century. On occasion, their devotion to their master seems to transcend the customary panegyric and cliched phrases familiar from court titulature on inscriptions and coins, so much so that it seems that in Saladin 
we're dealing with an exceptional person. Despite being a Kurdish outsider, Saladin is decked out in the sources in the usual trappings of a Perso-Islamic ruler. How well he knew the languages of the area which he ruled is not clear. Three, or three languages at least, would be spoken or written at his court. How well versed was Saladin in Arabic language and culture? He's portrayed, for example, as knowing by heart the genealogies of the Arabs and the pedigrees of their horses. He's said to have learned some Arabic poet, poetry by heart. At his court, he would bestow robes of honour on those who pleased him, and he himself would don robes of honour and receive other marks of distinction, such as ornamental saddles, precious cloth, either coming from the caliph and other rulers and dignitaries, both Muslim and non-Muslim. How did the ruler at this time wish to be seen? Obviously, the issue of how the ruler presented himself to the world was central to his self-image. The sources say precious little about this crucial aspect of the mystique of rule, but their sparse and gnomic references can be fleshed out by roughly contemporary physical evidence in the form of coins, metalwork, architectural sculpture, pottery, and above all, manuscript painting, which was beginning to enter its golden age in the Arab world at the end of Saladin's life. So I'm going to use a visual source, an almost contemporary frontispiece dated 1218, i.e. 25 years after Saladin's death. What does this image tell us about the ceremonial aspect of court life? In some ways, it is, as you'll see, a masterpiece of spin. The ruler, in this case, as his armbands tell us, is a man called Badruddin Lutlu, the ruler of Mosul, where Saladin had been in his youth. He's centrally placed and flanked by a gaggle of courtiers whose faces incline towards him on either side and whose poses express the idea of submission. All of them are beardless youths. These are the pages of his immediate entourage. Their hair is trained in long pigtails. Their eyes are almond-shaped. Their mouths a tiny cupid's bow, their cheeks puffed out, and their eyebrows, which appear to be plucked, form a double arch. Altogether, these features create the Buddha countenance, which is the epitome of beauty, whether male or female, of contemporary taste. What of the ruler himself? Not only is he central, and thus the immediate focus of attention. He's huge, even though he's sitting down. And if he got up, he would tower over his attendants by a couple of metres. He alone is shown in full frontal pose, making direct contact with us, and thus imposing his personality on us. He alone is bearded. He wears a sable hat, not well suited to the climate, you might say, but it's a sign of the nomadic heritage originating to the east. That same heritage explains other features, like the bow which he's carrying, the weapon par excellence of the nomadic horseman, and the X-shaped stool on which he sits. This is collapsible, and therefore easily carried. <clears throat> Other rulers sat cross-legged on cushions, with their backs supported by a wooden L-shaped hinge contraption, 
which could also be folded, so that too was portable. He alone wears gold-embroidered red leather boots, and he, he alone wears a watered silk robe in the celestial colours of gold and blue. This robe expands to form a halo over his head, singling him out and, so to speak, crowning him. The gold background of the image distances it from everyday life and suggests that this ruler occupies another sphere. Of course, as I said, the whole image is shot through with what we would call spin, but I hope you agree that it works. The court, of course, had its full share of women. I'm showing this picture to show them at the top in a row. You will note that they're segregated from the men, whether in the mosque, where it seems they were careful to wear their best finery, or when the ruler relaxed. Amongst Saladin's wives, Ismatadin, the widow of Nur ad-Din, is mentioned for her piety. He also had many concubines. Given his busy schedule of military campaigning and governing his lands, and the work which his biographer mentions that he even did at night, you'll be reassured to know that Saladin did enjoy some physical pleasures. At least 17 sons are a clue in that direction. As a ruler of a large swathe of Syria, Egypt, the Holy Land, and eastern Turkey, Saladin had many formal duties to perform on a regular basis. He had to receive envoys from Muslim and non-Muslim lands. He met his chief advisers probably at least once a day to discuss policy and make decisions. He would inspect his troops in the Hippodrome he would receive them at the door of his tent and provide meals for them. I wanted you to see some ceremonial tents since we, we, we should divest ourselves of Boy Scout type size of tents. These are massive. <coughs> he would hold circumcision celebrations for his sons and other young male relations. <coughs> celebrations at which he would distribute sweets and order 700 sheep to be slaughtered. And he gave banquets to consolidate his relationships with tribal chiefs, Kurdish, Turkish, and Arab, on whose auxiliary military support he relied. Depending on the prestige of incoming visitors, Saladin would leave Damascus and ride out for distances prescribed by their rank to meet them. When he travelled around the regions, other military warlords gave banquets in his honour, as was his due. A detailed description of the protocol for visitors is given in Saladin's biography written by Ibn Shaddad. Guests were received in order of rank. Only those people whom he wished to honour were allowed to sit down in his presence. All the others were obliged to stand. Writing about the visit of a Turkish baron to Saladin in 1190, Ibn Shaddad writes that the visitor was first received by Saladin's judges and secretaries, and then by his sons, before Saladin finally welcomed him. The visitor was given a separate cushion on which to sit beside Saladin. A brocade cloth was spread out before the guest as he entered, and he was given a special tent in which to sleep. Just so you're not distracted by pictures, I'll move on to a more discursive uh, <coughs> discussion now. Saladin's religious profile first. Saladin's religious credentials are regularly emphasised by his court biographers, who describe him as performing many public displays of piety. 
no doubt intended to show that Saladin was behaving. Is that distracting for you? Yes. Okay, okay, good. He performed these acts of piety to redound to his credit, giving lavish financial support to build or maintain religious colleges, mosques, and hospitals formed a crucial element in establishing the public religious profile of the 12th century military baron. Such conduct was aimed particularly at gaining religious credibility and favor with the religious classes in the major cities controlled by Saladin. Damascus, Aleppo, and Cairo. He needed the support of these key groups in reviving and sustaining the spirit of jihad, so crucial in establishing Muslim unity against the Crusaders. Saladin dispensed justice publicly every Monday and Thursday in the presence of religious scholars and judges, and he heard petitions for justice from ordinary people. On campaign, he supervised the distribution of booty to make sure it was done fairly. Privately, too, Saladin is shown in the Arabic sources as being devout. He performed the five daily prayers and sometimes even more. He had memorized the Quran, we're told, and studied the religious sciences, and he read books extolling the virtues of jihad. What about pleasure pursuits? Saladin's pleasure pursuits involved the traditional pastimes of the medieval Muslim ruler, falconry, hunting gazelles, and playing polo. He also liked to listen to music and singing, to play chess, and to hear tales of exotic lands full of marvels, monsters, and miracles. But it seems likely that in general, if we're to believe his biographers, he had very little spare time for pleasure. In modern parlance, both he and his advisors could be called workaholics. Imadadeen reports that Saladin dictated letters to him at night, and he then turned Saladin's words. We don't know what language Saladin used to dictate them in, I don't think. And he turned these words into the flowery prose for which Imadadeen is celebrated. Saladin's court attracted a good number of poets seeking his patronage and the contents of his purse. As the famous writer Ibn Khaldun wrote, poets did write laudatory poems for non-Arab rulers, but they did so only in order to win their favour, not for any other reason. Now I'll turn to Saladin's men of letters. Even allowing for retrospective flattery, Ibn Khalikan, the 13th century author of a famous biographical dictionary, declares all the poets of the age celebrated Saladin and came to enjoy his beneficence. And the famous author of memoirs, Usama bin Munqidh, whose experiences had spanned most of the 12th century, described Saladin's court as the sublime port. A very exotic and controversial figure at Saladin's court was a prose writer called Al-Wahrani, who died in 1179. He'd come from Algeria to Cairo to seek fame and fortune with his pen and his tongue. He delivered sermons in the mosque on Fridays, and during the rest of the week, he was producing devastating lampoons at Saladin's court. In these lampoons, Al-Wahrani drew on erotic and scatological motifs in a long-established Arabic literary tradition, far removed from court panegyric, which praised the ruler in overblown language. And Professor van Gelder will no doubt talk about that after lunch. In his work entitled Manamat, Dream Stories, Al-Wahrani especially targeted Imad al-Isfahani, calling him a homosexual 
and accusing him, and I'm going to read this slowly, holding orgies with wine, drunk from the navels of singing girls, and where the host ran naked over his guests on all fours, barking like a dog. As the psychiatrist in 40 Towers said, there's material for a whole conference there. <laughs> Yet it seems that al-Wahrani kept his position in Saladin's court, and therefore he must not have transgressed the boundaries of good taste with his vituperative writings. Not so, however, a more famous literary figure at Saladin's court, the poet Ibn Unayn, who went so far as to write the following lines about the trio of Saladin, his chief scribe, and his vizier. I quote, Our sultan is lame, his scribe is bleary-eyed, and his vizier is a hunchback. Ibn Unayn went on to describe the head of al-Qadi al-Fadil, Saladin's chief advisor, the head coming through the neck of his gown as a rat's head peering out of its hole. Ibn Unayn was banished thereafter from Saladin's lands. Given the status of dhimmis, protected religious communities under Islam, Jews and Christians had long played an essential role in Muslim governments. The Egyptian administrator al-Makhzumi, in his fiscal treaty, written at the end of the 12th century, mentions that Jews and Christians passed on the tradition of entering the professions of government and medicine from father to son, and that they kept their dominance in these fields because young Muslims were unwilling to work under the supervision of non-Muslims. In fact, as Daniel said, doctors of all three Abrahamic religions worked together in Saladin's entourage. Their presence was a living proof that religious persuasion was less important than medical competence. Indeed, as Bernard Lewis has said, when men are very sick, the desire to get the best medical treatment is likely to overcome even the strongest religious prejudices. And having a first-class team of doctors on hand at all times was crucial for Saladin for a number of good reasons. Firstly, much of Saladin's life was spent fighting battles, leading raids and besieging cities and castles. There was, therefore, a constant danger of injury and infected water and other problems of hygiene in the camp only enhanced the chances of falling ill. Saladin, moreover, escaped two direct attempts on his life by the extremist Shiite group, the Assassins, while on campaign in 1175-6. Thereafter, Saladin wore a corslet of mail. But these life-threatening events were a salutary warning to him that he needed doctors close at hand in case an assailant's dagger might attack him in an unwary moment. And he took still more precautions for his safety by living in a tower, Maksura, a wooden palisade within his tented camp. Saladin suffered from chronic ill health, especially colic. On one occasion in 1184, while besieging Mosul, he was seriously ill and his life was despaired of. Ibn Shaddad says rather laconically, Saladin was sometimes ill, but he would recover, or God cured him. A doctor would spend a whole night sometimes looking after him. Amongst his ailments, Saladin is reported to have suffered in 1190 from boils from his waist to his knees and he was unable to sit down properly. He faced his death with fortitude in the last seven years of his life, but harmony did not always prevail in Saladin's proximity. And indeed, Imad al-Din al-Isfahani was asked by the Qadi al-Fadil in a letter to tell the doctors not to quarrel around Saladin's bed and to try to cure him 
without thinking of getting rich in the process. As the old adage said, the doctors murmured as they took their fees, there is no cure for this disease. <laughs> From the 8th century onwards, as you will know, Muslim scholarship was not narrowly compartmentalised, just like Ibn Sina and Al-Biruni in earlier times, who had been veritable polymaths. So too, Saladin's entourage contained versatile men with many areas of expertise. One such example was Al-Giliani, who had come from distant Spain. He was a doctor, ophthalmologist, and poet. Another figure from Spain, Al-Bayazi, was also a doctor, but a mathematician and musician, too. And he accompanied Saladin on several military campaigns before being given a salaried post in Damascus. For some reason... The doctors in Saladin's entourage were the butt for the satire of Saladin's court poets. Was it because they were jealous of the high status enjoyed by Saladin's doctors? Was it because the doctors got higher fees than the poets? Or was it because the doctors were arrogant and lauded it over the poets? Or was it because the doctors were often Christians or Jews, while the poets were usually proud Arabs, proud of their heritage. I'll make a few short concluding remarks now. Like all other small courts in the Eastern medieval Muslim world from which Saladin had come, after all he'd been born and brought up in Iraq, the court of Saladin was modelled on deeply embedded, grandiose concepts of what a pious ruler should do, both in terms of representing true Sunni Islam and as a patron of the arts and sciences. Although Saladin was primarily a man of war, an upstart Kurdish outsider in the eyes of a world dominated by Turkish warlords, Persian scribes and Arab religious scholars, Saladin saw the need to have around himself, in order to legitimise his rule, the trappings of a sultan who patronised scholars and literateurs. Saladin's court, because of his fame, which grew and grew, became the magnet that attracted many prestigious scholars from all parts of the Muslim world, from Spain, Iraq, and places in between. And these scholars were Christians and Jews, as well as Muslims. So, when one reads about the rhetoric of Saladin as the hammer of the Crusaders, we should not be misled into regarding him as a religious bigot. His was a veritable, multi-confessional world whose horizons stretched from Spain to Central Asia and he seems to have had the generosity of spirit, the character, to fit comfortably into that world. Thank you. I do hope it wasn't too full of historical facts. It's quite difficult to... It's fascinating. Um, we can open up for a bit of discussion now before we break the coffee. Um, Yes. Uh, would, would you please give your name? Yes, I'm Dr. Jeff, Jeff Qureshi. I'm a consultant psychiatrist, uh, deeply indebted to your erudite scholarship. Uh, it is also said that when Saladin, uh, when the Crusades went to confront him, and on the way back they learned a lot of techniques which were transferred to Western Europe as returnees after the Crusades, those who survived. Uh, is there any evidence in your work? that some of the surgical medical techniques would have transferred to Europe in those times? Well, for a start, they went back with the idea of a soap, which um, the, uh, apparently um, the Crusaders, coming um, rather smelly, dirty, unwashed, um, uh, only the, the Knights Templar refused to use 
so, and it seems as if, well, they thought that would emasculate them. But um, the, um, the rest of the, Mus the, the, the crusaders who came <coughs> loved gradually the concept of the hammam, of, of washing every, uh, well, in the bathhouse and also in their own homes. And I think uh, other things, I mean, Charles Burnett will know more than me about this, I'm sure, but um, uh, they took home cooking techniques, the use of spices so that the meat wouldn't go rotten. Um, whether they took back a holistic approach to medicine, which is the long tradition of uh, the Muslim world, I'm not sure, because, of course, there was always the current through Spain um, and Sicily. Was he himself a physician, Salahuddin? Some legends are that he treated Richard de Cordelia. No, no. I mean, I think um, we've got here a really sophisticated piece of spin about Saladin. I mean, after all, he took some really tough decisions. He, um, he had a, a, an extreme Sufi. Um, he ordered him to be killed. He um, personally um, ordered the killing of uh, uh, the, crusade, the Crusader Knights, um, the, the Templars after the Battle of Hattin. He could take tough, tough decisions, but there must be some reason why medieval Europe eulogized him so much. Within 25 years of his death, the medieval French romances were saying that he was actually secretly a Christian. Um, it was all very... Um, and, and, of <laughs> and of course, what, what, where did Dante put him? Dante put him high up with the um, heroes of, of classical antiquity. Um, in Saladino, solo. He's, he's slightly apart, but, but he's with our friends um, Plato and uh, all, all the other great um, Greek names. And where, unfortunately, is the prophet Muhammad? Entrails hanging out very, very low down. In fact, I mean, un un until um, the coming of Osama bin Laden, I think probably Saladin was the best-known Muslim in the West, <laughs> apart from the Prophet. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, please. I'm Dr. Kazim. I'm also ex-consultant psychiatrist. <laughs> I want to make a small point. Actually, uh, from what I read about Saladin, he was not only fluent in Arabic, he was absolutely considered master in Hadith. Oh, and, yes. And you cannot know a great deal of Hadith, you don't know enough Arabic. No, I agree. It's just that, uh, is this panegyric or is it, yeah. you know, we'll never know. And another small point, the yes. doctors are always held in high regard in the Islamic world because the Prophet himself said there are only two uh, professions worth following. The one of religion and one of medicine. Yes. So doctors were always heard in Iron Court, beyond poets. Yes. Well, I think um, Saladin is supposed to have known the um, hadith of al-Bukhari very well. Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, certainly. And whether he'd memorized the Quran, who knows? Yes, uh, my name is Pauline Tilshe. I'm um, a PhD student in the supervision of Peter Pullman, you might know. Yes, I do. Um, yeah, I have a question about um, about the death of Salah al-Din, because I read in Ibn Khalikan that he died of a, a bilious attack to the point that his intellect became deranged. And so I'm always looking for... Yes. Yes, madman and melancholic. So, uh, uh, I was wondering if you if you had other biographical accounts of the way he died and <coughs> if this came across. Well, Donald would be able to help here, I'm sure, um, because he's immersed in Saladin. Um, but I mean, I, I I do recall another version of Saladin's death where I think it's a sort of um, alternative version where he um, died because um, he was bled too much. And there was a quarrel about doctors afterwards. I mean, he sounds as if... I mean, I, I'm amazed that he lived from 1138 till 1193, given his um, profile of things wrong with him. Um, he must have had really good medical attention because, you know, whether it's boils or colic or assassination attempts uh, where he got a cut on his cheek only, fortunately, um, he, he seems to have been a survivor, but... My impression is that he must have been tired out 
all this campaigning and people criticize him for not going on after Jerusalem in 1187 to finish off the Crusaders. I think he was just totally weary, which of course is very sad in a way because, well, sad from the Muslim point of view because uh, the Crusaders stayed till 1291. Uh, and he, he might have been able to do it because the um, Crusaders were so demoralized. But to go back to um, Ibn Khalikan, he's the best source for this. Mm -hmm. And I looked in Bar Hebraeus. Mm -hmm. do, do you look in Bar Hebraeus? I haven't. Well, you what? should, because he's, um, he's called Al-Ibri in, mm -hmm. um, in Arabic. And he, he's um, a, a doctor who writes in Syriac and Arabic. And um, he has lots of little tidbits about medical matters yeah. because they interest him. But he didn't have anything new to say about Saladin's death, unfortunately. I think I'd, I think I'd put Fahadine as a source for the last few days of Saladin's illness above the possibility of, of even Khalifan being the source. Yes. Oh, absolutely, because he copies him, doesn't yeah. he? Well, absolutely. I, I, I thought I heard you say that even Khalifan was the best source. All right, the most detailed, because he doesn't only use Ibn Shaddad, he has a variety of other sources. Ibn Shaddad gives an extremely detailed, yeah. for a little while, almost day by day, yes. in changes in his, and there's a lot of material for diagnostic uh, mm. speculation. <laughs> well, of course, you won't be surprised. Donald taught me, so I, I read it all very carefully before I came. <laughs> I'm so frightened of him, you see. <laughs> <laughs> no, on the contrary. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Dr. Afzal Jamil, I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, and uh, thanks very much for your uh, very informative talk. I'm just wondering that uh, going back to the format and the composition of uh, Saladin's code, as a scholar and as an expert in the field, do you think that uh, similar type of uh, formation was seen in Mughal's codes? And probably if you just compare these two codes, you will find that uh, Saladin, as well as the Mughal empires, they really had a great respect for professionals. Yes. And yes. amongst the professionals, of course, the doctors or what they call tabibs or hakims, yes. these were very well-respected people. Absolutely. Do you find any difference in terms of uh, what came after these big names uh, in the history of... Uh, uh, courts or in the process of these uh, rulership? Well, I think we have the prototype, the basic ingredients of the medieval, shall we call them, Perso-Turkish rulers pretty early on, um, even already in the 11th century with the Seljuk court. And the, those ingredients remain. And, of course, when you get to the Mughals, it's on a grander level, but there's a there are the same kind of uh, there's the same kind of respect as you say for scholars, for for medical men, for poets, for historians, for religious scholars. It's and and for Sufis, there's an entourage which um, is is part and parcel of the of, of the ruler's public profile. And even someone like Timur. Uh, as in Tamburlaine, that really um, terribly brutal conqueror, he was fascinated by, by learned men. He's reported, although being not well-educated himself, as loving just to sit and listen and imbibe the aura of being with religious and other kinds of scholars, poets and, and the like. So, yes, but I, I think that model lasted for the last three great empires of what one normally calls the Muslim Middle Ages, the Ottomans, the Safavids in Iran, and, and the Mughals. 
and, and, and the Uzbeks too in, in Central Asia, that you would find more points of com commonality than, than difference. Of course, Shiite or Sunni, um, there, there were differences there. The Safavids were Shiites. But, but the basic trappings included this uh, requirement that you were seen to patronize scholars. And even someone like Saladin or his, his, early, um, his predecessors, they, um, they saw the need to do that because they, they were grabbing land. And you might think, well, why should they care about what the religious elite think? But they did. They had to have the caliph's approval, even if it was retrospective. You, you, you conquered a place, and then you said, you wrote a letter to the caliph, or rather you had your scribe do that, and the caliph would write back and send a robe of honor so that that was legitimized. This was an, a prerequisite, it seemed, f for their overall uh, image. I mean, um, our, our present um, government ministers uh, uh, could learn. <laughs> a few theologies before Oxford, um, Carol. I uh, was wondering if you could say something about uh, Saladin's general spirit here, and, in, and I'm thinking about his the extent or limits uh, to his general spirit. To what extent, for instance, did he? Uh, mm -hmm make use of um, Shiites in his court, particularly of course in an environment where you know he is a he, he is a target um, and, and 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 looking at his rehabilitation perhaps of the former Fatimid um, uh, persons uh, in, in in his court. Well I think he looked for men who knew something. The Qadi al Fadid for example who was his chief advisor, he'd worked uh, for the Fatimids, and so there was no um, problem of, um, of religious um, allegiance there, um, plus the fact that quite a lot of these high-powered men, um, well, not quite a lot, there were those who I mentioned as having shifted, either becoming Muslim when they were Christian originally. Um, the Qadi al I don't know whether Donald knows, was he ever pro-Shiite in the sense of his own allegiance? I don't think so. Absolutely, but I mean, even in his early days when he was working in the Fatimid court. Um, so, as regards his um, employing Shiites, um, there's not any mention that I know of that. And in fact, after the assassins had attacked him twice, it seems pretty clear that he had come to an accommodation with them behind the scenes. Now, I mean, what that involved, I don't know. It was probably s sort of back off, please, uh, with some sort of remuneration. So they were, uh, as it were, off his back. There didn't seem to be any more attacks. Um, he seems to have been quite hostile to certain forms of Shiism. Um, obviously, he, he didn't like the Ismailis after this. And Sufis, um, mystical dimension Muslims, um, that was all right in moderation, of course. If you were within the kind of um, the Sharia acceptable Sufi groups, you were fine. But the most notorious case is Asukhrawardi, who is, is uh, appropriately called Al-Maktur, because he was, um, he was killed on Saladin's command in, in Aleppo. Um, and he had some very interesting ideas, um, which, of course, um, would go right back to Plato if, um, if we looked, or rather Neo-Plato ideas. But if you're presenting a profile of someone who's a pious Sunni ruler, um, you, you, you suppress any, any dodgy aspects. Um, Matthew Broome, University of Warwick, um, psychiatry. As to the question, given um, your very nice description of the court and how it moved around, how the physicians were always close to, to Saladin, um, I just was interested about thinking about medical education. Did that mean their apprentices, their students, yes. also followed around? Or was there a distinct way of training? Well, um, it isn't clear whether the, um, the teaching went on while they were travelling around. But I think it must have done. I mean, we're, we're, we're told in the sources that, that um, 
Jews and Christians and Muslim doctors all worked together and that um, they exchanged ideas. And we haven't talked about hospitals, which I'm sure Peregrine will do um, uh, in, in detail, but um, it seems as if they were also happy to collaborate and the, the pupils must have been in the hospitals. I didn't mention Saladin's having um, funded a hospital in Cairo and, and, and then um, one in Jerusalem. Um, so I, I, I would have imagined that perhaps the, um, the pupils went along too. I mean, much of what I've said about the court is, is um, fairly speculative because uh, they don't really give us the sort of details we'd like to know about. You know, apart from, as Donald said, Ibn Shaddad at certain points... I mean, maybe a bit, I was stretching it beyond what you have in the historical data, but it, is there a suggestion that sort of students or training which was shared between physicians? Or was it so yes. Very, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I didn't read that somebody was like a kind of apprentice to somebody else. Okay. Um, but um, Daniel will know better because he's been reading all the medical biographical dictionaries, so yeah. you better comment here. I mean, in the case of um, Ibn Jumai, if you look at him, uh, he, at the end of his life, stayed at the court in Cairo, so he didn't go with Saladin um, later on in his life because he was probably too old. Um, he, well, he died a bit later, a little later than Saladin. Um, but it seems um, that he was only staying at the court uh, at Cairo and not moving about. We know of his students and we know of his teachers, so there, there was a tradition of, of students, teachers. And we know about Ibn Jumai that he had a majlis arm, it's called an Arabic public meeting place or sitting place, <coughs> where he would teach uh, students. But how this sitting place or you know, place where they would convene looked like if it was, you know, would travel, um, I suppose not in, in, in Jumai's case, but there might have been. There would have been a circle around him, and they would be memorising yeah. what he was saying, writing it down in the Ijazah system, and then when you'd written it down, um, you would show it to the master, with a capital M, and he would say, yes, um, I'll put my name to that, and then the person had the right to go and teach that. This is the system that was used in the madrasa, and I would imagine it was probably the doctor. I mean, maybe they, they, they were looking at patients too, but we don't have that kind of detail. I might suggest that actually most of the physicians didn't travel in the peripatetic court. Um, I don't think we have any evidence, for example, of actually uh, of, say, it being said that when the court was at a given place, physician X, Y, and Z were there. And it's just strikes me that most of the physicians would have stayed either in Damascus or Cairo to teach, to work. It's, it's a better life than going on campaign with the ruler. Now, it may well be that one physician <laughs> drew the short straw and had to go on the, on the campaign, but I would be really surprised if you had a whole batch of physicians uh, doing that. I think them. I, I still think there was a small group that did. Do you think so? Well, I mean, for example, he got the, he got these boils, oh. and it says quite clearly that a doctor tented them all night because the poor man couldn't sit down properly. Indeed, right. Um, this was an unnamed doctor, mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it was probably one of the big names. That was why travelling. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh yes. Uh -huh. I mean, I would I would expect that any ruler of his stature would. If he had a, a group of physicians sort of at his base, one would travel with him at all, at, at all times. But I, but I just can't see the whole batch of them. No, I, I, I wasn't implying the whole batch. I, 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 but I, I think that um, given the fact that he had such ill health and that he was so much a physical figure, I, I don't think that given the fact that he was away probably for at least half the year, in, in permanent chronic ill health, it would be very unlikely that they would let him go without some support. Um, there's a very big new biography of Saladin written by Anne-Marie Edé in French. It's a big fat one, and she's got vast amounts of detail. And she seems to suggest that there was a team. Um, 
I would, I would also uh, just suggest the fact that uh, Maimonides, one of the court physicians, uh, uh, responded to uh, uh, Saladin's nephew by uh, letter, by letter Salah, suggests, I mean, he's not a court. He's not, again, that there would be a distance there um, between the actual physician and the physical. Yes. Yes, well, I mean, um, my, Maimonides was a, a person who wanted things to um, continue for posterity. Uh, he was a fine, fine scholar. Right. <laughs> um, Ian Chalmers, could I just ask, was there any distinction between um, surgical specialists, because you would expect on campaign there might be more needed people like Conquest Pari um, uh, later on in France, and people who would treat black bile, for example, mm. which uh, implies more of a physician sort of thing. Well, the sources don't help on that one. I mean, it's a very valid point. Um, as I was mentioning to you earlier, there's this wonderful picture in the Rashid Adin manuscript in Edinburgh of um, a caesarean operation, um, which is from a manuscript um, dating to the early 14th century. Um, so I, I, I think the artistic evidence, um, I need to have a chat to my artistic specialist, my husband, about mm. the evidence for that in miniature painting. But um, the sources, they're, they're just so stereotypical most of the time. I mean, someone like Inishadar is a rarity. And, and unless you um, look in non-historical type sources, but um, I mean there are special words for the surgeon, um, but um, and there are these famous um, apocryphal stories, tall stories, pub stories, the kind of thing you would say. Do you know the one about in Osama bin Munkath about um, the incompetence of crusader historians, uh, doctors, and um, uh, the superiority of Arab medicine? But then sometimes um, Osama will also say, well, the crusader um, treatment was better. So it's quite a, that's a very rare source. And if you haven't read that book, it's worth reading. The memoirs of a Syrian, um, a Syro. Thank you very much, Donald. Yes. Memoirs of an Syrian gentleman. Lots of translations of it. Actually, in terms of madness, you find one story in there. Yes, very good one. Well, I don't actually know if it's about madness because. Um, she had a gin. I don't know if he, if he had a gin. I think he doesn't even tell us. And uh, he he uses uh, apparently a Persian word. I didn't have it with me. But um, are you talking about the one where um, <laughs> uh, the um, crusader um, doctor rubs salt into yes, his yes. open brain? Yes, it begins yeah. that yeah. this in the form of yeah. the cross. Yes. Yeah. Well, it begins that this lady was suffering from something. Yeah. I don't have the exact term. I think it says that a, 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 demons, a, a yeah. devil or demon. Yeah. Definitely. I, I have I have a look, but I think it wasn't that clear. I was looking for something like this, and I was quite devastated to find. Oh no, it's not. <laughs> I, I'll have a look. I think it's not really clear. I mean, obviously, well, I the, Christian, the Christian physician <laughs> thinks that she is possessed by a demon, yes, so yes. therefore rubs it in. But the the, um, the Muslim physician looks at it and says, No, no, no. We should be very mild yes. and gentle with her. That's right. I mean, to um, go back to your, your your question, Ian, or your comment, um, that very story. Um, has two parts to it. One part deals with a, with a surgeon, because this this this, this uh, knight has been um, very badly injured, and uh, I think the the Muslim doctor or the Arab doctor was going to prescribe some kind of holistic um, um, cure, whereas the um, Crusader doctor comes along and says, um, "Would you rather live with?" Um, one leg or die with two. So the person says, well, I think I'd rather live with one leg. And so he, he makes a very bungled job of amputating the leg. And, and all the blood spurts out, and the man dies immediately. Um, and then the, the second half of the story is this bit about the, um, the, the woman who may or may not be possessed by a demon. And, um, and so he cuts an incision in the top of the brain in the form of a cross and rubs salt um, into the top and of course the, he ends up with the punchline 
The woman died immediately. Yeah. <laughs> the operation was a success. Yes. <laughs> now, this is a man, Osama, who, um, as I said, lived for most of the 12th century. He didn't actually live as far as uh, Saladin's reconquest of Jerusalem, but Saladin gave him a home when he was a very old man. And he's got this encomium to Saladin at the end of his memoirs. Do you think that the, the fact that the, the incision was in the shape of a cross was part of the treatment? <laughs> well, I think it would be the same category as rubbing pig fat in there. It's a, it's a cliche, I think. Right, on that wonderful thought, is there, are there any more comments? It's been very helpful to us. Well, it was a very stimulating response anyway. Thank you. Thank you.